Well, good morning, everyone. I'm Jason, the lead pastor here at College Park. And I also just wanna say welcome to everyone joining us online for this worship experience. Whether you are a regular attender or member here at College Park, or maybe you're our guest this morning, we're so glad you're here. And our hope and prayer is this experience will bless you today. And the Lord will make us all aware and responsive to his presence. So last week, we started a new teaching series on the Holy Spirit. This week is number two of four. The first message in the series was an introductory and broad view about the Holy Spirit. And the questions we asked last week were, who is the Holy Spirit and what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his work? In that time, we discovered that the work of the Holy Spirit is to make known and to enact the presence of God in the world, especially the church. And to do that, the Holy Spirit empowers the people of God with life, with new life in prayer, and with skills and spiritual gifts for use in the church and in our communities. The Holy Spirit also reveals the things of God, his nature and his character, giving us guidance and direction, assuring us of our belonging to him and helping us understand his will and the words of scripture. The Holy Spirit also unifies his people in life and ministry and mission. And the Holy Spirit also purifies the people of God by cleansing us from sin and making us more holy in our conduct and in our thoughts. And lastly, the Holy Spirit testifies to the power and the presence of God according to how our lives are in step with him by giving and withholding blessing. This was a big picture or a broad perspective on the work of the Holy Spirit, what he does in the lives of believers and in the church. This week, we want to drill down and take a narrower look at another specific question. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, we see this language a lot in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And our hope today is that we all come out of this message time with a more coherent understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, what are the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit, and finally, how to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So let's just jump right in. So the first question is, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And this really has two angles. On the one hand, when we say we are filled with the Holy Spirit, we mean we are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that he actually resides inside those who have come to faith in Jesus. If the work of the Holy Spirit is to manifest the active presence of God in the world, especially the church, and the church is made up of all who are Jesus' followers, then to be filled or indwelled by the Spirit is to be filled with the immediate presence of God himself. And the result is that we begin to feel what God feels, desire what God desires, do what God wants, speak and act and pray and live with God's strength and direction and knowledge and power. We begin to do this. Our identity and our usual patterns of life switch from the fleshly or sinful nature to the spiritual nature. So that's one angle, that the Holy Spirit himself lives in each of us who have come to faith in Jesus. And the other angle is this. When we say we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we mean that we are enabled for the Christian life by the Holy Spirit on an ongoing basis and increasing measure, leading to spiritual fruit. Now, spiritual fruit is something that we'll talk about later in this message, but especially next week. But first, we need to do some biblical survey work and look at a few particular points or questions bound up with the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
You know, the New Testament uses a number of phrases when it speaks about our interaction and experience with the Holy Spirit. Two of the most common expressions are filled with the Spirit, as we already know, but there's another one that we are baptized with or baptized in the Holy Spirit. So I wanna take a few minutes and talk about this language of being baptized with or baptized in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? When does it happen? Well, it happens at our conversion. When we come to saving faith in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and victory. And it means to come into the new covenant power of the Holy Spirit, which includes our regeneration or our new birth, as the scriptures call it. And it includes our initial cleansing from sin and our breaking from our identification with sin. Sin doesn't identify us or define us anymore. And it also includes receiving gifts from the Holy Spirit of empowerment, spiritual gifts for use in ministry. And there are seven verses in the New Testament that speak of being baptized in or being baptized with the Holy Spirit. The first four verses are all from the gospel accounts, one from each gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they feature John the Baptist speaking of Jesus, baptizing people with the Holy Spirit. For example, in Mark chapter one, John the Baptist says, after me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You know, some translations say baptize you in the Holy Spirit. Some say with the Holy Spirit. Well, just so you know, the Greek word can mean either in or with. So from now on, I'm just gonna pick one and use it. But know that they are interchangeable. So from these four verses, all we can really take away from them in terms of our understanding is that Jesus is the one doing the baptizing and the Holy Spirit is the substance or the element, so to speak, that he will baptize people in. John used water, Jesus uses the Holy Spirit. So the next two verses that talk about baptism in the Holy Spirit come from the book of Acts. The first is in Acts chapter one. And it says that on one occasion, probably not too long before Jesus ascended into heaven, he said to the disciples, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is clearly Jesus foretelling what would happen a few days later on what we now know as Pentecost in Acts chapter two, when the disciples were gathered together and the Holy Spirit came upon them as tongues of fire, empowering them for the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit in their lives and in their ministries. And the second occurrence is in Acts chapter 11, where Peter, he makes reference to what happened at the Pentecost event, but was then repeated in Cornelius's household. So those are the first six references to baptism in or baptism with the Holy Spirit. The last one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where Paul says, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts from one body, so it is with Christ, okay? He's talking about the body of Christ and how we're all have di having different functions, but we're still all part of one body. And then he says, for we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were given the one spirit to drink. 
Now, this reference to baptism and the Holy Spirit has generated a degree of controversy and disagreement and unfortunately even division in the church. It's caused tension because this reference is worded a little differently than the other six verses we just looked at. If you look closely, you'll see how most translations, they render this particular verse differently than the other six verses. The other six verses speak about baptism in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit, whereas this verse is often translated as baptized by one spirit. What's the difference? What's the big deal? Well, the first six verses in the Gospels and the book of Acts clearly indicate that Jesus is doing the baptism and the Holy Spirit is the element in which he baptized people. Remember, John used water and Jesus uses the Holy Spirit. But in 1 Corinthians, many translations say, for we were baptized by one spirit. So one could say that it looks like the Holy Spirit is the one doing the baptism here, not Jesus. So, and because of that, they further argue that this is a second baptism that's necessary for all believers. Something that happens after our conversion, not at our conversion. But with all respect to those who believe this, the problem here is that the Greek text doesn't support a difference in translation here at all. The verb forms are the same, the prepositions are the same, and really the only difference is that Paul says one spirit instead of the spirit. So why are there differences in the translations? Why translate the other six verses differently than this verse? Well, honestly, and really quite simply, it's to avoid some awkward English on the translation side. Translators were trying to avoid the double use of the prepositions in and into. You see, the verse already has the phrase into one body. So if we translated it more literally, it would say in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And it makes it sound like there are two locations into which we're baptized, the spirit and the body. But if we understand 1 Corinthians 12, like the other six verses, it's easy to see how the spirit is still the element in which we're baptized and the location is into the body of Christ. So I hope that helps clear up some understanding about this language of being baptized in or with or by the Holy Spirit that we see in the New Testament scriptures. All seven occurrences really do refer to the same idea, that we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of our conversion when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and commit to him as our Lord. But this does still leave a question hanging open. What about Pentecost? What about Pentecost? The disciples had already been born again under the ministry of Jesus after they trusted and followed him. But when they, and when they believed in his resurrection and victory over sin and death. And for them, that was before Pentecost. So did they receive the Holy Spirit at their individual conversions before Pentecost? The answer is no, they didn't. They clearly received the Spirit at Pentecost as we see in Acts 2. For them, it actually was an event that took place after their conversion. But here's where it was different for them than it is for us and anyone who's come to faith since Pentecost. We have to remember that Pentecost marked a shift from the old covenant work of the Holy Spirit to the new covenant work of the Holy Spirit. Before Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was certainly present and active, making known and enacting.
reflecting the presence of God in the world. But after Pentecost, the Holy Spirit actually resides in the being of every person who follows Jesus. That's the primary difference between the old covenant work and the new covenant work of the Spirit. And the first generations of disciples, they lived in both eras. They lived at the end of the old covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. They literally lived at a time of transition and how God was working through his Holy Spirit. So for them, it most certainly was a second experience because it came after their conversion, right? But it doesn't mean it's the same pattern for us because we're not living at that time of transition from the old to the new. We are living squarely in the new covenant. Instead, we're in the same position as these believers in Corinth or in Ephesus or Cornelius who all came to faith after Pentecost and immediately were baptized into the Holy Spirit, into the body, the church. Okay, so let's take another sidestep and ask another question that people often have when it comes to being baptized or filled with the Holy Spirit. What about speaking in tongues? Because of what we often see in scripture, there are so many who make a necessary connection between being baptized in the spirit or being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. Now speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues is something that we're gonna talk about a little more in a couple weeks. But for now, here's the definition. Speaking in tongues is prayer or praise spoken in syllables not understood by the speaker. Sometimes they're known human languages, just not by the speaker, or some other kind of angelic or heavenly language miraculously given to the speaker. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul says anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. So tongues are primarily spoken to God, but can also be for the benefit of the people. And Paul goes on to say that if there's no one present being blessed with the gift of interpreting those tongues, that the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Still be blessed by it, but keep it between you and the Lord. So they're to make it a matter of their own prayer and their own worship and their own experience. In Acts chapter two, verse 11, at Pentecost, we see how the disciples were speaking in tongues and how the crowd reacted by saying, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. So this gift and the interpretation is meant to edify the church and to call attention to God's glory. And speaking in tongues is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And we don't truly see anything in scripture that clearly indicates that this gift or any gift for that matter has ceased to be for the church today. But we also can't assert from scripture that being baptized in the spirit or being filled with the spirit either equals or requires speaking in tongues. For one, Paul clearly says in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 10 that not everyone will receive the same gifts. Some will receive this one, some will receive that one, and still others will receive other gifts. But also, there's many occasions in scripture where we see people filled with the spirit, but they didn't speak in tongues. In Luke 1, Elizabeth was filled with the spirit, and instead of speaking in tongues, she spoke a word of blessing to Mary. Also in Luke chapter one, same chapter, Zechariah was filled with the spirit, and he prophesied. In Acts four, the disciples were filled with the spirit, and the result was powerful preaching. In Acts 6, the result of the deacon's filling of the Holy Spirit was maturity and wisdom. And in Acts 7, Stephen, by the filling of the Holy Spirit, was given endurance, grace, and dignity in the face of his his own death. And even Jesus himself, you know, we never see Jesus speaking in tongues, 
But we know from John 3 that he was full of the Spirit without limit or without measure. But we do see in Luke 4 how Jesus, being filled with the Spirit, overcame the temptations of the devil in the wilderness, and then he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee as he began his public ministry. So let me stress here that I don't reject the legitimacy of the gift of tongues for the church today. It is wrong to claim that they are a necessary part of being filled with the Spirit, but it isn't wrong to claim that they are a possible part of the experience of the church today in worship. Now, personally, I've never spoken in tongues, nor have I ever felt the urging by the Spirit to do so. But I do believe on many occasions I have witnessed it in authenticity and have been blessed by it. It may not be part of how God has built or gifted you for worship and even for the norm of our church, but let's not get into the habit of telling God what he can and cannot do because we're either inexperienced or uncomfortable with it. Let's let the scriptures tell us what God does instead. Let's not reject or despise any of God's gift, including tongues and their interpretation. Okay, so let's get back to where we were before that sidestep. If the baptism in the Holy Spirit is something we experience at our conversion, then how do we understand the widespread testimony of repeated experiences of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Is there validity to those experiences? Well, the answer is yes, there is. Uh, But there's not just a second experience, but a third and a fourth and a 10th and a 50th and so on. But baptism in the Holy Spirit probably isn't the correct term for that or the correct way to think about it, but rather we could say empowering or enabling or maybe refilling or refueling. Can you experience a sudden surge in your spiritual life? Yes, and my hope is that you do over and over again. But that's not a second baptism, that's a revival. Think about this. In the Christian circles where second baptism is taught, There's a preparation process people are guided through to get ready to pray for and receive their second baptism in the Holy Spirit. Listen to the things they're guided to do. They're guided to confess all their known sins, repent of their sins, trust Jesus to forgive their their sins. They're led to commit every area of their life to Jesus, to surrender fully to him, and to believe that Jesus is going to empower and equip them for life and ministry. You know what that sounds like to me? discipleship. It sounds like a guaranteed prescription for a surge of growth in one's life and faith. I mean, if any Christian is sincere in these ways, we can certainly expect surges of growth. Prayer and Bible reading and study and worship and even connecting in friendship with other Christians will be more meaningful. God wants to do this in all of us regularly and repeatedly. So instead of baptism by the Spirit, we can say a new empowering or a surge of growth or a revival of faith. Or we can just use the language of Scripture and say we are being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, for that leads to debauchery or depravity or immorality, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, if we translated this verse literally, because of the verb form, it would say, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, or keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Paul implies here is that being filled with the Spirit should be a regular and repeated experience for Christians. Going back to the book of Acts again, there are a number of examples of people being filled with the Spirit, and many of them are repeated fillings of the same person. Take Peter, for example. 
Acts 2 is the initial pouring out of the Spirit at Pentecost for which Peter was present. Then you have Peter before the Jewish council in Acts 4, filled with the Spirit as he spoke to them. And then again in prayer with the disciples at the end of Acts 4, filled with the Spirit again. Or consider Stephen again. Acts 6 said that he was a man full of the Spirit and of wisdom. And then at the end of Acts 7, he was filled again as he faced death from stoning. And then there's Paul. In Acts 9, he was filled with the Spirit at his conversion. And then in Acts 13, he was filled again when he confronted the sorcerer, Elymas. So being filled with the Spirit is something that can and should happen again and again, again and again in your life. It can be for a specific momentary purpose like Peter before the Sanhedrin or for Stephen facing death or it can be a growth in your daily practice of faith that leads to a new level of experience with the Lord that now becomes your new normal. Sometimes it's sudden and grand. Other times it's subtle and gradual. Now, You could ask, if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, how can you be filled more? I mean, filled means already full, right? If a glass of water is full, you can't fit more into it. Well, there are two ways that we can think about this. For one, maybe another analogy, instead of a glass being full, is a balloon, at your conversion, you're filled with the Spirit, and this is your new normal. And this, this balloon is full, okay? But then later on, you might be filled again, and this is your new normal. And then later on, you're filled again, and now this is your new normal, right? Or maybe sometimes, like Peter before the Sanhedrin or Stephen before the mob, you need more than your normal, just temporarily. So God fills you with His Spirit more for that particular moment or experience. Or maybe we can use the water glass being full as an appropriate analogy. Because listen to this in Romans 15, 13. Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God fills you with his spirit and then he just keeps on filling you so that you overflow to others, to your family, to your children, to other believers, to your neighbors and loved ones who are far from God. Maybe someone you know needs your overflow. So God, he wants to fill us and just keep on filling us with his Holy Spirit. And the effects, the results of the filling of the Holy Spirit are amazing. So let's take a look at that next. What are the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Back to Ephesians 5, Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery or immorality. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then verses 19 and 20, he says, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So for one, being filled with the Spirit, it affects our worship. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. When we are filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a renewal in the vibrancy of our worship, increased expressions of thanksgiving, and a recognition of Jesus' presence and authority in our lives. Being filled with the Spirit, it turns our minds and our affections to our holy and loving God, eliciting praise and words of adoration, songs of joy, and a renewed delight in the Lord. But I love how Paul doesn't just say, sing and give thanks. He says, speak to one another 
with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. There's a community-directed focus that's the result of being filled with the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit, it affects our relationships. I think this is why we're so eager to get back to meeting in person together for worship because what happens in our community life is something that only he can do by his presence and by the unifying of the Holy Spirit of the people together in spirit and truth. In our worship, when we gather, we encourage and we teach and we admonish and minister to one another. The filling of the Holy Spirit leads to restored and strengthened relationships and new friendships in the body of Christ. And when we deepen our friendships, we deepen our faith. If you look at the whole of Ephesians 5, it's in the context of walking in the way of love in verse 2, living as children of light in verse 8, and being filled with the Spirit in verse 18. It's from this context that Paul then goes on to give instructions for relationships in the rest of the chapter and in the beginning of chapter 6. So the filling of the Holy Spirit affects our worship and our relationships. Also, being filled with the Spirit affects our capacity for joy our capacity for joy. In Acts 13, Paul, on his first missionary journey with Barnabas, he traveled to a town called Pisidian Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And on the Sabbath, Paul, focusing primarily on the Jews in the city, preached the gospel in the synagogue, and it was well-received. And word spread, and then the next week, almost the entire city gathered to hear Paul preach again. But this time, the Jews in the city started a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and they expelled them from the city. But look at what verse 52 says about them. It says they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So even in their mistreatment and expulsion, the disciples, because of the filling of the Holy Spirit, were able to be joyful. Now joy, in fact, is a fruit of the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, and we'll look at the fruit of the Spirit next week. But for today, we can see that having joy in any circumstance is an effect of being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, today in our worship time, we sang, amazing grace, my chains are gone. You know, another effect of being filled with the Holy Spirit is an increase in our sanctification, the overcoming of our sin or we might say the breaking of our chains. My chains are gone, I've been set free. My God, my savior has rescued me. You know, Jesus' work was to break our identification with sin, our love for sin, and the consequence of sin. But the spirit works in us to actually overcome our behavior and our temptation to sin. Again, we see Jesus in Luke four, he was filled with the spirit as he overcame the temptation of the devil in the wilderness. It's the Holy Spirit that does this ongoing purifying work in us. So often the filling of the Holy Spirit is the blessing we need and the blessing we receive to break those chains. And yet another effect of the filling of the Holy Spirit is to give us the boldness we need to be witnesses for Jesus. And we've already seen this in a number of places. Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter before the Jewish council in Acts 4, it says, then Peter filled with the spirit said to them rulers and elders of the people. And then he went on to boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. And in a number of other places, we see those early Christians being threatened by the religious authorities, the ones who orchestrated Jesus's crucifixion. But instead of cowering in fear, they asked God for the power and the ability to preach the gospel and to minister to the people. And God answered their prayers with repeated fillings of the Holy Spirit. 
the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit of God are many and they enable us to live the Christian life on an ongoing basis and in increasing measure. And this brings us to our last question of the day. We've asked, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What are the effects of being filled with the Holy Spirit? And now we ask, how? How do we become filled with the Holy Spirit? Now, this may at first seem kind of like a tricky question because we're asking how to go and do something that can only be done to us. We're commanded to be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit, but we are not the filler. We don't fill ourselves. God is the Holy Spirit. God, God the Holy Spirit is the filler. But here's the answer. How do we, we become filled with the Holy Spirit? Through faith. Through faith. Now maybe you were expecting some profound and mysterious answer or insight, but the scripture is very clear. It's through our faith that we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Back to, Stephen's in, back to Stephen in uh, Acts 6, it says he was a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Barnabas in Acts chapter 11, he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You know, the fullness or filling of the Holy Spirit and faith go together. If you are filled with faith, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit. Let's put up Romans chapter 15, verse 13 again. Paul says, may the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him. Some translations say, fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So whether the, transla- the translation says, trust in him or in believing, the word here is the word for faith. So it's by our believing that we are filled with joy and peace and it's by the spirit we overflow or we abound with hope. So when we bring together both halves of this verse, we see that it's through our faith, our believing that the spirit fills us with joy and peace. We believe in all he is, all he's done and all he said to, uh, we believe in all of that to fill us with his spirit and to give us hope. You know, none of us stays full of the spirit all the time. Only Jesus was filled with the spirit without measure. But for the rest of us, Paul says, keep on being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that happens through our faith in our believing. So how do you bolster your faith? How do you bolster your believing? Well, you surrender, you rely, you obey, and you pray. First, you surrender your life fully to God. Do you know that it's possible to know who Jesus is but not be surrendered to him? You know, Romans 12 verse one, Paul says, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Put yourself on the altar before God fully and completely. In Galatians chapter two, verse 20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the son of God. Crucify your flesh nature. Yield yourself to God and believe that Jesus will live in you and through you. Secondly, rely fully on God for the power to live the Christian life. Listen to this. Romans 8 verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And in Galatians chapter three, Paul, he asks this question. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing 
what you heard? Are you so foolish after, being, after beginning by means of the spirit that now you're trying to finish by means of the flesh? Living according to the flesh or by the works of the law means to depend on yourself, your strength, your willpower, which, as Paul says, leads to death. It leads to failure every time. You don't have the power to overcome sin by merely knowing the rules, knowing the law. But if you depend on the spirit to overcome sin, then you will experience life and victory. Are you tired of, of failing in the same ways all the time? It might be because you're trying to depend on your own willpower or your own self-guided plan to achieve victory. But true and lasting victory comes from relying on the Spirit's power instead of your own. But this isn't just about overcoming sin, but it's also about power and ministry, spiritual gifts, relationships, marriage, singleness, parenting, discernment, and decision-making, and so on. When you live according to the flesh or by the law with respect to any of these areas of life, there will never be the blessing, the fullness, and the experience you can have relying on the Holy, the Holy Spirit and the power of God to live the Christian life. The third important aspect of bolstering our faith, our believing, is to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. In other words, as you surrender your life fully to God and you rely on him for the power to live as one of his gospel people, obey him, obey him. 1 John chapter two, John says, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. But this is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So important in bolstering your faith is that so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit is to choose humility and obedience as he gives you the conviction and the power to do so. Cooperate with the Holy Spirit. And fourthly, one of the most important aspects of fostering our faith, our believing of bolstering our faith is to pray for it actively and regularly pray for the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life. Ask someone else to pray for that and commit to do the same for them. If gospel people are a people of greater dreams and abundant life, hope, grace, generosity, freedom, unity, and good works, then actively and regularly ask the Holy Spirit to empower you in these ways. Jesus said in Luke 11, ask and it will be given to you. Your Father in heaven will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And Paul said to the church in Ephesians chapter one, I keep on asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. So pray for it for yourself and for one another. Do you feel spiritually dry today or tired or weary? Are you frustrated about talking about the things of God while experiencing little of God himself? Does your worship feel routine or empty? Do you find yourself less thankful and more pessimistic? Do you long for more joy and fruitfulness in your life, in your relationships, and in your ministry? Then you are just the person the Holy Spirit wants to fill up, and he wants to bless you with hope and joy and encouragement today. You know, your discouragement is actually an invitation from the Lord to lean into him and to be filled with his spirit. 
And we'd like to pray for you today for that. You know, if you look in the notes attached to this video post, you'll see a link to an online conference room on Zoom for our Sunday morning prayer ministry. If you're watching this on a Sunday morning, we have a prayer team, uh, members who, and pastors who are ready and waiting and eager to meet you and to pray for you. If you're watching this later in the day or later in the week or even a month later, we still want to meet you and to pray with you. So get on our website, seek out any of our staff members, and we'd be delighted to meet with you online or in person. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the promise we have in the ongoing and increasing presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and for all the wonderful, beautiful effects of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that because we are so unable, because we are weak in our flesh, Lord, that you would empower us, you would enable us, you would actually call us into response to the presence of your Spirit. Lord, we ask that you would continue to be with us today as we continue to worship, as we seek you, as we love you, as we glorify your name all by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name and by that Spirit's power we pray, amen.